Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.5, The European Economy. All right, I bet you are all very anxious to jump into the world of the 16th century economy, but first I want to quickly address where the podcast is going over the next couple episodes. I'm sure by this point you've started to ask yourself, gee, is the political history of the United States ever going to actually talk about, you know, the political history of the United States? The answer is yes, we are actually coming to the end of our European survey. So we have this week's episode on the economy, then next week we are going to have an episode focusing primarily on what everybody else is doing in the Americas, and then we are going to be ready to go to Jamestown. So if you're wondering where all the American history is in this, hang out, we'll get there shortly. For this week, though, we are going to continue our survey of Europe in the 16th century by turning our attention to the economic landscape. Much as with the episodes of Politics and Religions, I plan to cover just the very basics of the economy and its structures during the 16th century and hopefully show you the changes that were occurring. Also, as with Politics and Religion, the 16th century was a time of major economic change. Unlike the rapid change, though, that we see with religion following the Reformation, the changes to the economic system, though, are far more gradual in nature. The changes that we are going to talk about today are changes that realistically took place over the better part of 200 years. Likewise, with such a long duration, there really is not a central figure driving the change. Instead, what we're going to see is a series of events that unfold during this time that spurred the transition from feudalism into a capitalistic society. There are several reasons why the transition took place this way, and more specifically, why they occurred when they did. In this episode, I'm going to look at the system that was in place throughout Europe prior to the movement to a more modern capitalistic system. We are going to look at the feudal system and explain why that system became increasingly unsustainable during the 16th century and in the time leading up to it. We're also going to look at why a more capitalistic-based system replaced the feudal system, what advantages did a capitalistic system have over the feudal system, and how did the growth of the central state encourage and even require that more capitalist forms of economy take over. Finally, we're going to look at the concept of mercantilism and the desire of nations to hoard bullion. Concepts that we still have today, such as trade deficits, would emerge during this era. Moreover, it is necessary to the nation to secure these critical resources that's going to help explain why there was a drive and a necessity to explore new lands. This need is what's going to push these countries to go across the ocean into the new world and is going to be the engine that drives imperialism. To start today, we are going to look at the economic systems that were in place prior to the rise of capitalism. It is the feudal economy that had come to dominate Europe in the centuries prior to the emergence of capitalism. The feudal economy rose to prominence in Europe in the time between the 8th and 10th century. And the feudal system is fundamentally different than what we are used to today. Our modern worldview is of an economic situation that is driven by the central nation. We discuss economics with terms such as gross domestic product, a figure that looks at the total output of a particular nation. This concept is born out of the era that we're going to be talking about today, but prior to that in the feudal world, this would not really have been a thing. Prior to this point, the economics of Europe were not driven by centralized economies, but rather from powerful landlords who held vast amounts of land. 
It was these landlords that held the power over taxation. This system, which existed to some degree from the fall of the Roman Empire and coming to prominence later in the Middle Ages, saw a largely agrarian system of subsidence farming take place. Under a feudal system, you would have expected to see a number of smaller economic centers where the majority of the funds went to that local landlord. Most of the people living during this time would have been farming just enough product to sustain themselves with the remainder being given to the landlord in the form of a tax. Any excess beyond that amount that's given to the landlord and needed to sustain themselves could then be sold to non-agrarian populations within the city. The system led to a limited merchant class, which came from namely two groups. You have the individual farmer who produced enough that they could afford to sell the excess, as well as those working for the landlord himself. It was the agents of the landlord who made up the vast majority of the merchant class. The system generally resulted in limited opportunities for trade and made the town the nexus of the economy. Now, trade, of course, did exist during this time. However, it was much different in nature than what we think of today. Trade in a modern sense is a product of mass production and the global ease of large-scale shipping. However, under a feudal economy, trade was focused on the movement of luxury goods, not sustenance goods. What this means is that there is always going to be a limited market for trade, as really only the wealthy could afford such luxury items. The farmer who makes just enough food to pay his taxes in the landlord and feed his own family was not going to have the funds to ever participate in the trade or acquire the goods being moved. This system results in the most powerful person in any given area being that individual landlord. It is the landlord who is going to be the individual that the peasant is going to be responsible to. It is the landlord who is collecting the taxes. When it came time to raise an army, it is the local landlord who is going to be responsible for selecting who goes to war. The local landlords were the true center of power in the feudal economy. For a monarch during, say, the 11th century, they are going to find that their authority only went as far as the landlord would allow. In this aspect, much of the economy during the time before the 15th and 16th century was barter in nature. By the 16th century, things had clearly begun to change as trade became more of a central part of the European economies. The question therefore becomes, why? What had changed that supported a move from the feudal system to a capitalist system? The beginning of the change to a more capitalist system would first appear during the 14th and 15th century, during the Hundred Years' War. With a war economy for such a long time, the population of feudal France and England found themselves stretched thin. Between the existing feudal dues and now the necessity of additional taxes to help fund the war, the population of these countries lost the available income to engage in any trade, both internationally or even on that local scale. This means that suddenly landlords and artisans were left with product that they couldn't move. This would lead to a long period of economic stagnation. With this type of stagnation, landlords suddenly found the growth more difficult as more and more tenants struggled under increasing pressures of higher taxation in the war economy. The entire situation was further exacerbated by the issue of depopulation that occurred as a result of repeated outbreaks of the plague. It is this particular plague that has earned the nickname the Black Death and is most often what people think about when they think of plague outbreaks. The plague was spread by fleas, which typically rode on the back of rats. 
While commerce was nowhere near where it is today, there was still enough of it that the rats carrying the infected fleas were able to spread. From what we know today, we believe that the outbreaks would begin in the east and spread to the west. In Europe, specifically, outbreaks would start down near the coast of the Mediterranean and then spread north with time. The outbreak of the 1300s, which touched nearly all parts of Europe. In the 60 years of this particular outbreak, at least one-third of the European population died. I have seen some estimates that showed that nearly half of the European population may have died as a result of this plague. The plague touched all levels of European society. Royal families and clergy both saw deaths from the outbreak. And yet, while the plague did not discriminate, it should come as no surprise that the proportion of the population that did the majority of the dying was from that peasantry class. The depopulation had a devastating effect on the feudal landlords. Fewer people meant that the landlords were left with two options. On the one hand, the landlord could accept less from their tenants and accept a new reality. Or, on the other hand, the landlord could raise taxes on the remaining population and try to get more out of those who survived. Well, the reality of the situation is that the landlords were going to be required to survive with less. It did not stop them from placing additional pressures onto those peasants who survived. The pressure of having a long-time war economy, as well as devastation from a result of the plague, led to increasing discontent among the peasant population. The unrest leads to a prolonged period of nearly 150 years of peasant rebellions throughout Europe. The cause of the majority of these rebellions was the exceptionally high feudal dues being impressed on those peasants. The anger from these excessive dues would boil over and the landlords were suddenly left with rebellions on their hands. The largest of these rebellions was the German Peasant Revolt of 1524 to 1525. This is going to remain the largest popular uprising in Europe up until the French Revolution 250 years later. During the conflict, the German aristocracy killed nearly a quarter of a million peasants as they struggled to regain control. In this manner, the German aristocracy did manage to suppress the revolt despite the great cost of doing so. However, while the peasant revolt was ultimately a failure for the peasants, it didn't exactly make the landlords sleep any better. Forty years before the uprising in Germany, a similar uprising had occurred in Catalan, an area in northern Spain. In their revolution, the Catalan peasants managed to bring meaningful reform in their rebellion. This is something that is likely going to remain in the minds of the European landlords as they look at their own standings and the risks involved. The revolts in Germany and Catalan were the biggest incidents of peasant revolt during the era. Yet this type of revolt was hardly an isolated incident around Europe. Similar events had occurred in France and England and were spurred on by the same pressures. In a 100-year period from 1450 until 1550, there were at least 16 major peasant revolts in Europe. And it was the anger over these high-tax burdens, as well as the continued practice of servitude in the form of serfdom, that caused these peasant revolts to become a popular fixture throughout the continent. While the vast majority of these rebellions were ultimately put down by the landlord, it's not exactly the kind of problem that is going to make any landlord very happy. This dangerous mix of high feudal dues and depopulation from plague led to increasing pressure and rebellions amongst the peasant populations. And further exacerbating these problems is that those being killed during the rebellions are now not available to go farm their land, which leads to further depopulation and just keeps compounding the problem. Now, if you're a 16th century landlord, 
you clearly have some problems that you're going to need to go ahead and address. Obviously, you don't want to be living in a world with ongoing rebellions. Rebellions are never a good thing for their landlord. The landlord runs the risk of really bad things happening to them. Say, for example, a peasant mob showing up at their door with pitchforks and torches, interested in airing their grievances. And even if they manage to suppress the rebellion, they're going to likely have to do so by killing the people that they depend on to pay their dues. So, regardless of the outcome, the landlord always is going to lose. The obvious answer for the landlord is to call up the central government for help. After all, that's what the central government does, right? Well, there's a problem with this plan. If you're a feudal landlord, it is in your best interest to keep the small central government a thing. So why do you want a small central government? Throughout much of the Middle Ages, it is the feudal landlord who is the real king for most peasants. Sure, there's a guy on some throne somewhere, but you've never really interacted with him in any kind of meaningful way. It is the landlord who is responsible for collecting taxes, collecting his feudal dues, helping round up people to fight in the army, and doing all those things that happen on a daily basis. It is the landlord, not the king, who is directly involved in the day-to-day activities of the peasants. And the landlords liked it this way. They liked having the power to control taxation and control their peasant populations. They thoroughly enjoyed being kings over their small fiefdoms. A strong central government is a direct threat to that sovereignty. If you are an actual monarch, you would be more than happy to curtail the power of the landlords and make it less likely that they start having thoughts about what it would be like to be the actual king. So, to surmise... A strong central government is bad for the landlords, whereas a weaker central government is beneficial to those landlords. The problem for our landlords is that the peasants have reached a breaking point and that insurrections are breaking out. While being the ruler of your own fiefdom is nice, it is a whole lot less fun when that angry mob arrives. Landlords, now left with few options, were in fact forced to turn to the central government for help in suppressing the rebellious rabble. Changes in military technology and tactics also are going to play into all of this. As guns and cannons begin the process of replacing bows and swords, ideas such as the infantry charge begin to appear. These things require a more disciplined army than was previously necessary and also requires more manpower. This here is a two-fold problem for the landlord. With the necessary increase in discipline that an army requires, it makes far more sense to have a standing army rather than just a bunch of guys running out there with swords and armor. This is going to put additional strain on landlords as they were already suffering from depopulation. With standing armies, it also meant that the central state has a new and powerful tool at their disposal. If a rebellion starts, the individual landlord, or a collection of landlords, are now less likely going to be able to put together the force that they have to put down that insurrection. Experienced soldiers are remaining in the army longer and are no longer at the disposal of the landlord in the way that they had been previously. This means that when rebellions occur, the landlord is not going to be able to have the manpower necessary to quash the insurrection. Once again, this is going to push the landlord to having to ask the central government for help. Something that, spoiler alert, the central government is going to be more than happy to oblige with. 
At the same time that this is all going on, during the 15th and 16th century, you enter into a period where there are particularly powerful monarchs throughout Europe. These monarchs are able to build the complex bureaucracies necessary to collect taxes in a more controlled manner than local landlords ever were able to do. The central government taking over tax collection is a huge blow for the local landlord. It was not a great secret that manipulating the taxes of the peasantry was a pretty big financial boon to the local landlords. Now, suddenly, the state steps in, removes a large part of the individual landlord's income, and with it, their power. With more of the peasantry money reaching the central state, that means that there was less of the money reaching the landlords. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with a changing economic system in Europe? Well, in the most simple terms, a feudal economy is going to have limited trade, often within a small region. As more powerful central states appear, it is the state itself that begins participating in trade on a much larger scale, often involving other countries. Trade was moving from being something that occurred on the local level to something that occurs on a national level. The other part of the story that we cannot ignore is the importance of the discovery of the Americas. By 1492, Europeans were fairly well aware of the resources that existed within Europe and the surrounding area. For instance, there was an awareness of where the silver and gold mines were, and the rough estimate of their yields. However, with the discovery of the Americas, that equation suddenly changes in a huge way. Economist Edward Perroy explains the situation by stating that between 1460 and 1530, silver production quintupled in Central Europe. Despite this, however, demand was still outpacing the supply, thus driving up the cost of silver. With the discovery of the Americas, Europe suddenly had a far richer source of gold and silver that could keep up with the demand. The greater supply of further precious metals fueled even more demand, though. People wanted more and more of these goods. This race to acquire precious metals is going to form the basis of a dominant economic thought of the day that Adam Smith is going to eventually dub mercantilism. The rise in gold and silver didn't just return to Europe for hoarding, though that is what happened to the majority of it, which is something that we will discuss here in a moment. Large portions of gold and silver were taken to places like Asia, where it was traded for other luxury items like spices and jewels. These new luxury goods then began entering the European marketplace on a far greater scale than had previously been seen, largely due to that newfound wealth made available in the Americas. Initially, at least, no nation would embrace this new and evolving economy like the Portuguese would. And while our story is seldom going to involve Portugal, they do provide an excellent example of why the Americas would help fuel a new world economy. Numerous sources discuss how it was Portugal that was really at the forefront of growing international trade. So, why Portugal? The reason why Portugal would lead the way in becoming a leader in trade can clearly be seen simply by looking at the map. To the north and east, Portugal is completely blocked in by Spain. To the south and west, they are bordered by an ocean. Trade in the Mediterranean has always been fraught with dangers, especially considering that the narrow opening to the Mediterranean in Gibraltar was controlled by the Spanish. For Portugal, expansion over land was all but impossible. On the seas, however, it was a very different story. 
Portugal had other advantages over its European neighbors. Whereas most of Europe during the 15th century had been embroiled in internal warfare, Portugal had known relative peace. This allowed the local merchant class of Portugal to flourish. It illustrates the importance of that central state to the internal stability. Instead of struggling with minor warring fiefdoms, Portugal and its strong central state were largely free of these problems. This, in turn, allowed the resources of the nation to be used on growing trade and expansion rather than petty warfare. For the Portuguese, overseas expansion always was the logical jump. Being landlocked by Spain, they had few other prospects of expanding into Europe. To the west, however, the possibilities were limitless. This is in conjunction with a strong central state keeping the peace which allows Portugal to initially jump out as a leader in the exploration of the Americas. And while ultimately the Spanish are going to pull ahead, exploration and trade were a hallmark of the Portuguese Golden Age. What the experience of the Portuguese really shows is that power that a strong central government gives to an expanding state. These governments are more stable, they are less subject to the whims of a feudal lord, and larger governments are going to allow international trade to grow and a true world economy to begin to form. All of this is reinforced by the sudden surge of supply from the Americas. To finish this week, I want to take just a couple of minutes to discuss the concept of mercantilism. Early capitalist systems are not the same as we know them today. What first evolves is the type of capitalism that today we know simply as a mercantile economy. So, what the heck is mercantilism? The most simple explanation of mercantilism is that it is the process of gathering and hoarding bullion. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, first, let's start off with answering the question, what is bullion? Bullion is simply precious metals, namely gold and silver. In game theory, mercantilism is what you would consider a zero-sum game. What this means is that in every transaction, there is a winner and there is a loser. The thought was that in every deal between two countries, it was always necessary that one country won and one country lost. This idea fosters the line of thought that there are only so many limited resources to go around. So, for example, let's say that England has one ton of gold. The benefit for the English would be twofold. Not only do they have the gold in their possession, but by them having the gold, it means that nobody else has that same gold. A simple way I have seen this explained is with pizza. And let's be honest here, pizza explains basically everything you need to know in life. So let's pretend that you and seven friends decide to buy a pizza. They decide to have you cut that pizza. When you divide the pizza, you cut your piece slightly bigger than everybody else's. In a zero-sum game, you've just won, to the detriment of everybody else. Your larger slice of pizza means that everybody else is going to be forced to eat a smaller slice of pizza. When taken to the economy, what results is a nation attempting to hoard as much precious metal as they can. Doing this forces the other countries, who themselves want to obtain as much bullion as they can, to trade for them from a position of relative disadvantage. In terms of economic policy inside the state, you are going to see mercantilism manifest itself in several ways. The main calling card of a mercantilist economy is going to be the very high tariffs on imports. You want to keep bullion inside the nation, not traded away for foreign goods. 
During the colonial era, you often saw the colonies act with restricted trade. So, for example, a colony would only be allowed to send their goods back to the home nation. They would not be able to engage trade directly with any foreign powers. So a French colony may be restricted from trading directly with an English colony. Instead, the supplies would be sent home to England, and the home nation would conduct the trade with France directly. This ensures that the central government is always in control of their internal supplies of goods, and they are not being bypassed. The system would also stress the importance of having a surplus of trade. This is a concept that we still have today. In the United States, every time there is a federal election, one of the candidates is always going to bring up the trade deficit. When working with a mercantilist economy, a nation is going to want to attempt to keep trade as one-sided as possible. You always want to export more than you're importing under this system. And this is not to say that trade is not important with mercantilism, as it does remain a critical component of the system. However, it is in the best interest of each country to limit imports as much as possible while having a high number of exports. The system would remain in effect in large part up through the 17th and into the 18th century when it began to give way to a more free market form of capitalism. That is really all I'm planning to say about mercantilism. It is something that's going to come up from time to time as we discuss trade from the American colonies. However, generally speaking, I don't really anticipate that we are going to be spending a ton of time talking about the horde of bullion in this podcast. Just wanted to get it out there and make sure you guys know what was going on economically at the time. What makes this story so much different from the other subjects we've covered during our survey of Europe is the fact that there really isn't that one watershed moment or a single person driving the narrative. If you look at the Reformation, all roads lead back to Martin Luther and 1517. If you're interested in the English Reformation, well, look no further than Henry VIII. The key moment of the Anglo-Spanish War? That would be the Spanish Armada. Even in our first episode on exploration, you have names like Columbus and the 1490s to turn to. In the case of the economy, though, that just simply doesn't exist. There is no one person that we can pinpoint who drove these changes. There isn't an event that caused a sudden change in the system. The changes to the economy took place over the period of hundreds of years. It is a slow process of depopulation, which led to higher and higher feudal dues. The inability to make the dues leads to peasant revolts, which weakens the now nervous landlord population of Europe. Central governments are becoming more advanced and have more ability to tax, which becomes necessary to support their armies as military modernization begins to take place. With the increased bureaucracy comes a notable decline in the power of the central landlords, both as an individual and as a collective. The central state took that power from the landlords and, as a result, began to grow more. With a growing central government, the town becomes less important as an individual economic node, and the country itself becomes increasingly important as national economies begin to appear and flourish. Trade increases through all levels of society throughout the 16th century, as Europe becomes increasingly more involved in importing goods from the Americas. All of this is combined to lead to the end of the feudal economies of the past and introduce the more modern capitalist system that we know today. There are numerous other factors that I did not bring up for conversation in this episode. For instance, 
During the same period, you have a big issue with the manipulation of currency, and that is going to help also usher in a more capitalist system. And I didn't bring it up because, bluntly, it's a subject that I personally don't feel comfortable enough to talk about, and at least in the context of our story, I don't believe that it's going to be that important of a factor at this point. Talk to an economic historian about the era, and there is a great deal more that is going to influence the change from feudalism to capitalism. For our purposes, however, I think this will give you a pretty good background that you're going to need moving forward. Everything I described are events that took a very long time to occur. In this episode, we travel all the way back to the 1300s and forward well into the 1600s. The Reformation was often running in a single generation, but economic change takes centuries. So when we discuss the changes of the 16th century, what we are really discussing is the accumulation of 200 years of political, social, and financial pressures on the economic systems manifesting themselves. These changes don't just stop in the 16th century. At the time of the founding of Jamestown, the economy was still very much evolving into a more modern system. Economic concepts such as mercantilism would dominate their day as the world economy would become increasingly globalized in the decades and centuries to come. Next time, we are going to conclude our survey of Europe by looking at what is happening over in the Americas. It has been quite a while since we last looked at what was going on across the Atlantic, and I want to give you an idea of where all the major players are located and what they're doing on the eve of the Jamestown colony. Now, the next episode normally would come out on December 30th. However, that's in the middle of the holiday break, and I'm not going to be in a position where I can actually post a podcast during that time. So we are unfortunately going to be delayed just a little bit longer this time than normal, and the next episode will drop on January the 6th. After that, I plan to get right back to my every two-week schedule. My apologies for that. Until then, however, I want to wish you guys a very happy holiday season, and I will see you back here in a couple of weeks where we will dive in to our tour of the Americas. Thank you.